You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conif Allende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we followed the French pirates in the Pacific Ocean through early 1686. I told you we were going to speed through the rest of that year and into 1687, and we are. But there are a few major events that took place in the summer of 1686 that are worth noting. On 9 June... Nearly half of Captain Francois Groenet's French privateers voted to leave the command of Francois Groenet. They wanted to join up with Captain Townley. The two captains were allies. They had attacked Grenada together, but they were now on separate crews. Townley had the bigger ship, and he had seen more success than Groenet in the last few months. So 150 pirates, including Ravno de Lusanne, went over to Townley. Then the two crews split up. That was what initiated this vote to leave Groenet and join Townley. Groenet stayed in and around the Gulf of Nicoya, there off the coast of Costa Rica, but Captain Townley sailed south and east to the region of Panama. He attacked the city on the 22nd of July. It may have been the most successful raid on this entire Second Pacific Adventure. He captured, according to historian David F. Marley, an estimated 1,500,000 pesos in assorted goods and treasure, and then 300 Panamanian prisoners. However, the pirates were ambushed on their way out of Panama, and the Spanish reclaimed most of their money and almost all of the goods. That left the pirates under Townley with only 15,000 pesos and the prisoners. The president of Panama, as you might imagine, was outraged, but he did have a number of pirates held captive that he had captured, and he tried to bait Townley into waiting around for the demanded ransom. Instead, Townley ordered two captives decapitated, and he had their heads sent on to Panama. The president agreed on a truce. The pirates would receive food from Panama every day, cattle, sheep, and flour, in return for the safe treatment of the Spanish prisoners, not as a means of ransom. In the meantime, the Panamanian officials and the pirates could haggle over the proper terms. 
Townley waited around for a few weeks, but finally he threatened to send 50 heads to Panama. The Spanish gave him an answer. On 22 August, a force of three ships and 240 men attacked the pirates. It was unsuccessful. About 65 Spaniards were injured or killed, and all three ships were taken by the pirates. When the battle was done and the bodies were counted, Townley looked at his losses, went to his prisoners, and then sent 20 heads on to Panama. Revenot de Luzon writes, quote, This measure was in truth a little violent, but it was the only means of bringing the Spanish to reason. End quote. But Captain Townley was wounded in the battle outside Panama. His wounds grew infected. The pirates finally did receive 10,000 pieces of eight, and the Archbishop of Panama even informed the pirates that they would be considered good Catholics in the eyes of the church, and so they would have the protection of the church. This was a kindness. Any pirates that had been killed would be treated properly. They would be cared for and buried rather than being desecrated. And the church would, according to the archbishop, argue on behalf of the pirates. But the church didn't command the militia or the navy. They could only protect the pirates so far. And then, on 9 September 1686, Captain Townley died, and he was succeeded in command by Captain George Dew. This is episode 69, These New Turks. There is some confusion in the records here. Revenot de Luzon records an Englishman named George Hewitt taking command of Townley's crew. David F. Marley interprets this as a pirate named George Hout taking command. However, this is probably the symptom of two pirates being confused with one another. There was a French pirate in the Pacific named De Hoot, or Hewitt in English, that was sailing with Captain Pierre Le Picard, and we'll meet him later. But Marley actually contradicts himself here. He says in another passage that George Du took command after Panama, not Hoot or Hewitt or De Hoot. Lusano was unclear in a lot of his passages, and he spelled names however he felt like, often differently in the same paragraph. I suspect that when he was on this voyage, he didn't know how to write. He didn't learn until later when he was writing about his voyage, and the narrative suffers for it. I think what happened in this bit of confusion is that George Dew took command of Captain Townley's crew. Eventually he did, we know that. Captain Hout, or De Hoot, led another force, and that force eventually joined with George Dew. But whatever the reality is, this little pirate fleet, now under the command of George Dew, or whoever it actually was, sailed southwest. Eventually, Captain Groyne followed them. He left the Gulf of Nicoya, and he met up with them on the coast of modern-day Colombia. These two groups were allies, and they helped each other out over the following seven months, but they sailed separately as often as not. The English buccaneers that were also in the Pacific, the other English buccaneers, those under Captain Edward Davis, were also in the region. They were a bit further south than George Du or Groynay, along the coast of Peru, and these two groups wouldn't meet up until the spring of 1687. From 1683 until 1686, very recently, we had William Dampier writing about the English pirates on board Bachelor's Delight. But Dampier left that crew to sail with Captain Swan to cross the ocean and reach the East Indies. 
So for some time, we actually lose touch with most of the English pirates. Edward Davis, aboard Bachelor's Delight, along with William Knight, Peter Harris, and all of those men, they kind of fade into the background. Now, we'll return to William Dampier at a later date, but for now, we're going to talk about what we can of the English under Davis. We have a bare-bones account of what he got up to. After the assault on Leon and Rialejo in Nicaragua, the first assault, the assault of Bachelor's Delight, the ships sailed east. However, they were hit by that same yellow fever that struck Dampier and Signet, so Davis ordered his fleet to turn around and head west. Apparently, they were searching for Signet. There were doctors on board. He probably wanted help, but his ships... Well, they were hit really hard, and he never found Signet. Instead, Bachelor's Delight put ashore on the coast of modern Honduras. The yellow fever tore through his ranks, and maybe as many as a fifth of the pirates on board died. Edward Davis himself came close, but he survived. The English buried their dead, most of them probably at sea. And then Davis, Knight, and Peter Harris the Younger sailed back east toward Peru. It's... A genuine shame that they no longer had Dampier to write down the exploits of Bachelor's Delight, because things really started to pick up here. The pirates raided a few smaller coastal settlements and actually extracted a ransom from some of the towns in the region, one as large as 10,000 pieces of eight. Then they made for the Galapagos to careen their vessels. There they were engaged by a naval squadron, a Spanish naval squadron, and had a heated battle. But after that battle was over, the English captured a vessel carrying around 25,000 pesos of silver and jewels. Except for Harris at Santa Maria, this was, so far, the biggest prize any of the pirates had taken in the Pacific. The pirates moved on to Paita in Peru, and there they captured 39 slaves, but they were actually moved to free them instead of to capture them and sell them at a later date. And most of those 39 slaves decided to join with the pirates, at least until they found somewhere far from Spanish slavers. They attempted a raid on La Serena, but they were rebuffed, as tended to happen at La Serena. There were other villages they raided along the way. However, there was little plunder in these besides fish and corn. But fish and corn, well, the pirates didn't mind capturing those. They were hungry men. They did hold one commune hostage for an additional 5,000 pieces of eight. And then, after a few months of raiding and running, the pirates finally sailed off south for the Juan Fernandez Islands. They knew the Juan Fernandez Islands would be quiet, and they wanted to let the heat die down. But the men in the assembled crews were split on how to move forward. Some of them wanted to continue raiding, but others wanted to return home. Eventually, they chose to split up their plunder. Captain Harris and his crew had their own loot from the attack of Santa Maria, more than a year ago now. But all of the rest of the plunder was collected and counted and divided among the men. It came to a modest sum of 1,150 pounds. If we adjust that for inflation in modern U.S. dollars, that comes to about $35,000. 
Now that's significantly more than any of the Europeans could have hoped for, working on a navy ship or a merchantman, and it was certainly more than any of them would have earned living the life of an indentured servant, and it was far better than the zero dollars the Native Americans and escaped slaves among them would have received, if they could find somewhere that they would be allowed to spend it, and the pirates, remember, didn't have rent or bills, or most of them, they didn't have families to care for, so the money would stretch, but $35,000 isn't a huge sum for two years of work, compared to the unparalleled fortunes they had expected from the treasure fleet, it was tiny. However, for many of the pirates, it was enough. Some of those pirates had lined their pockets with gambling winnings from other men on the cruise. So Captain Knight and his men took their bark, sailed south-southeast, rounded Cape Horn, and eventually returned to the West Indies and a lifetime of unremarkable anonymity. Before we move on, I would like to talk about the people that were on board Bachelor's Delight here in 1687. There are few details to give of most of the regular crew members that we haven't already discussed. We know the names of the captains, of course, and a few of the crewmen like Basil Ringrose, but we don't know much about anyone else. I can say that most of the pirates on board were veteran buccaneers by this point, the one-time privateers that had served in the war, well, they were obviously old hands. But even the young men, the raw recruits back in 1684, well, they had experienced defeat at the hands of the Spanish Armada. They had survived yellow fever. They'd fought and they'd killed and they'd seen their friends killed. The Mosquito and the Kuna allies that sailed with these pirates were, well, usually the Native American allies were... Well, there was a bit of distance between them and the European pirates. They were guides, they were friends sometimes, but they were separate from the crew. However, here in the Pacific, hundreds of miles from anyone's home, I imagine that a camaraderie took root that transcended those traditional ethnic and national lines. All that is said of the 39 freed slaves is that Davis intended to take them to Jamaica, where he planned to sell them. The English, by 1686, were buying and selling more human beings than any other nation. In part, it was because Spain had spent so long importing slaves into the New World, their need for active slave markets had diminished. They still had all of the plantations and the mines that used slave labor, but most of those were populated by slaves born in the New World. However, Captain Davis was convinced not to sell those slaves. He chose instead to free them. Who convinced him, we don't know. There were other freedmen among his crew, other people of African descent who probably wouldn't have been too happy at the trading and human lives, or it may have been the other Englishmen that talked Davis into taking the slaves on as crew. The English did have an attitude, especially prevalent among pirates, that they were morally better than the Spanish in regard to slavery. You see this a lot among ancient peoples, especially in religious writings. There are always new religious sects of new and progressive rules, relatively speaking, and there are always new rules about how to treat your slaves. Rarely does anyone ever suggest, you know, not owning slaves. Whenever someone does, they usually killed them. But the English, being 
modern Protestants with these progressive rules thought they treated the slaves better than the Spanish. I doubt that the slaves really thought they did. But those slaves were... Well, if they were taken on as crew, the English on the crew may have argued, they could be trusted. They would have to be fed whether they were slaves or crew, and they could be put to work either way. But as crew, they could do the work and eat their food and roam about on deck freely without the need to watch them every second of the day for fear of escape or mutiny. And the work that they would do would be the worst of the work on board. Even if we ignored the prejudice that the English would have felt towards Africans and slaves, which you shouldn't ever do, but even if we did, they would still be the newest recruits on board, thus they would get the dirtiest and most unpleasant jobs. However, I imagine that even those dirty and unpleasant jobs would feel like a luxury when compared to the chains and the whips that they had known, especially with the knowledge that freedom, real freedom, might lie at its end. There may have been a plan to drop these slaves off at one of the maroon settlements nearby. Lusan wrote when he first entered the Bay of Panama months and months ago, quote, We arrived at those islands which stand thirty leagues to the east of Panama. We found the largest of them to look more like the continent than an island, so spacious and mountainous it is. The same is inhabited by those whom they call maroons, or fugitives from the Spaniards, upon whom making their escapes from their masters at Panama and the adjacent places have made this a place of refuge. End quote. And it was not unheard of and becoming more and more a common practice for pirates whenever they captured slaves to frequently put them to work on that voyage, but then drop them off at one of these places of refuge. And we know that the pirates here knew at least of a relatively safe place for the slaves, and if they felt that moral superiority to Spain or even to their English comrades of higher standing back in Jamaica, well, they may have wanted to drop them off. It may have made them feel warm and fuzzy inside. And then it might have been the slaves themselves that convinced Captain Davis to free them. They could be more valuable as members of this crew than as human cargo. They knew their way around this region better than any of the English did. They were familiar with the land and the customs of nearby locals, and they could blend in so much better than a bunch of haggard English pirates, and such a thing could be useful. And then there were a few women with the pirates. There are not many details, but one of them was an older slave, a freed woman now, apparently born in the Americas, in Spanish America. It's not clear where they picked her up. She may have been with those 1,000 slaves captured outside Guayaquil months earlier, but more likely she ran off with the French after their attempt on Lyon, but she could have joined up at any time. She served on board the French vessel as a ship's doctor. Luson doesn't really give her proper credit in that role. He dismisses many of her remedies as superstition, but... They sound a lot better than the typical prescriptions on board a ship at the time. Instead of a dose of brandy and cutting off limbs or bleeding or drawing out bad humors, 
She had herbal remedies for the pirates, and she knew many of the local herbs that would be good for medicinal properties. And she frequently administered citrus and even antibacterial concoctions. However, we don't know her name. Lusanne doesn't think that those are the stories we would want to hear. But we really do need to hear, in his estimation at length, about just how really crazy good bananas are, and how many of them there are. And, yeah, I get it. When you take into account the intended audience for his book in 1687, you know, publishing was weird, and they typically needed a patron, usually a wealthy noble who would add his name to the work. And, yeah, banana plantations were just the sort of thing they were interested in. They could prove profitable if taken over from Spain. There was a Native American woman with the English at one point, with Edward Davis on board Bachelor's Delight, but Dampier gives us even less about her than Luzon did. We don't know if she was a mosquito rebel who joined up with John Cook and Edward Davis way back when they were sailing before they were sailing on the Revenge. She may have been Kuna. She may have joined up with Harris or Townsley while they crossed the Isthmus. Maybe she was after her own share of revenge or maybe plunder. Maybe she was from up in Mexico somewhere. She might have met one of the pirates sailing with William Knight and fallen in love. We don't know who she is or where she came from. We don't even know that she was a cook, per se, just that she cooked a meal for them one time. There is a Spanish woman of particular interest, but we'll tell her story and the stories of a number of other Spanish women next time. For now, the English fleet under Davis sailed north. They attacked Arica in modern-day Chile. Arica is... Well, you know how when you go to a particular travel destination, there is always one place that you just have to go and see? It's like an obligation, even when it's filled with tourists and not all that cool, and you've already seen it on countless pictures and postcards. The Liberty Bell, or Plymouth Rock, or Big Ben, or the Eiffel Tower. Well, Eureka had kind of become that for English rovers. We've mentioned it before, several times. It's the southernmost port of consequence on the Pacific coast. Everyone that rounded the Cape was almost forced to stop there. If you were English and you weren't opposed to a bit of piracy, you could go there and trade for food and water and wine, or you could get a little bit of plunder. Francis Drake attacked Eureka. Richard Hawkins attacked Eureka. Bartholomew Sharp on the first Pacific adventure, he did, and John Eaton only about 18 months earlier. Edward Davis took Eureka in February, 1687. There was plunder and pillage and kidnapping and ransom, and in the end they were paid about $10,000 in silver to leave the city in peace. The raids were getting more and more profitable, but remember that that 10000 had to be split up several hundred ways, and it represented several months' work. That was their only payday for some time. It was a prize not to be scoffed at, but... It wasn't huge. The pirates were, after Eureka, searching for information that might lead them to a huge prize. They didn't find it, but they did find other information of great interest. One of the Spanish soldiers they captured, well, they questioned him, and he told them of some Spanish plans in the region. 
the Spanish were marshalling a fleet, and they intended to take that fleet and wipe out the French buccaneers. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I wonder if Edward Davis felt a flash of jealousy here. I mean, the English had been raiding and robbing and killing all along the coast of Peru. They'd extorted thousands of dollars in Spanish silver. Why weren't they worth a fleet? But it makes sense after a fashion. The Spanish and the English were... They were old enemies, ancient enemies, but most recently they had been allies against France. King Louis was a titan. His imperial aspirations were causing trouble for everyone that wasn't French. More locally, here in the Pacific, on the coast, the English were pirates. They were a menace, but that's all they were. They were outlaws, not under jurisdiction of any governor or king. Hostis humanus generis enemies of the whole human race. Under normal circumstances, that would be a detriment. That would be terrible. That would mean that everybody was hunting you. However, the French were not hostis humanis generis. In the eyes of the Spanish, they weren't pirates. They weren't outlaws. They were privateers. They carried letters of mark bearing the name of the governor and, beyond that, the king of France the same king of France who had been at war with Spain off and on for 20 years, for longer. That same king had, only a few months back, made peace with them, with Spain's king. King Louis, by allowing these privateers to roam, was going back on his word. He was breaking his vow, he was breaking that truce, and that was spitting in the face of Spain. English corsairs were a problem. They had to be dealt with eventually, but for the most part they could be paid off and mostly ignored. These Frenchmen were an affront to Spain itself, an insult to their pride, an insult to their nation and their king. There is also the fact that back in 1686 the Archbishop of Panama did announce his protection over the English buccaneers, that he considered them, despite their religious leanings, to be Catholics in good standing. That was a weird move, but it wasn't an umbrella declaration covering all English buccaneers. It was specifically for the crew of Captain Townley, and then Captain Dew. Perhaps, though, it provided an excuse for the Spanish authorities to overlook the English depredations in the region, for now, and then focus on the French. That's what they really wanted to go after. 
You see, there were other extenuating circumstances. The governor of Costa Rica sent the president of Panama a letter informing him of the French piracies that had taken place in his country, of the French fleet landing and ransacking the home of a Knight of St. John, and then occupying a fort for four days, threatening Grenada, killing Spaniards. He told the president of Panama that the French had intended to pass through his lands to take Lake Nicaragua across the Isthmus, but that the pirates had been foiled, and then he warns the Panamanian governor that he believes the pirates are going to attack Panama. They must not be allowed to escape. Now, the pirates did attack Panama, but they were rebuffed. But then the Panamanian governor wrote the governor of Costa Rica a return letter. I would like to read a bit from that. The letter from the governor of Panama to the governor at Costa Rica reads in part as follows, quote, Sir, this is to give you notice of the advices I have received from Carthagena by the way of Puerto Bello. The king of France, supposing he had received some affront from our nation, sent eight sail of ill sorts before Calais to demand contribution. And seeing there was so vast an inequality of force upon this occasion, we agreed to give him half a million to withdraw his ships and return to their ports. You know that my lord bishop forced me to send out three ships to fight the pirates, that continuing still before our port, and took all the barks and canoes that were coming in. Our ships surprised them at break of day, which made one of the pirates slip his cable. Through the skill of the commander I saw the fight from my ramparts, the honor whereof I thought infallibly to have appertained unto us. Having seen them draw near the shore, I sent a chaloup to bring away the anchor of that vessel that had slipped her cable in order to fasten her in our port. As soon as I saw them ungrappled, I dispatched away two long barks, or galleys, to go and learn the news, and bring those of the enemy that survived before me, though my orders were that no quarter should be given to any that were found upon deck, to the end we might rid the world of these enemies of God and his saints, who profane his churches and destroy his servants. These new Turks sent me twenty heads, and I bethought myself that, for the preventing of the slaughter of so many Christians, I ought to send them their men, with ten thousand pieces of eight, for the ransom of ninety of our people. Thus you see how God is pleased to afflict us on all sides. Let us take all for the sake of his suffering for us. End quote. There's a lot to unpack in that letter. First of all, the raid that he's talking about initially, the advices he received from Carthagena by way of Puerto Bello, that raid happened in the North Sea, in the Caribbean Sea. That was a raid that, well, technically it was mostly Dutch pirates attacking the Spanish. Lorho de Graaf, Jan Willems, Mikhail Andrézun. But they were doing so with a French commission flying a French flag. That was one of the raids we've talked about on this show before. That was an affront to Spain, and Spain needed to respond everywhere to the French king. Then, well, there was a taunt in that letter. The president of Panama tells his counterpart, the governor of Costa Rica, of how they dealt with the pirates in Panama. He says, we were attacked, but we sallied forth and defeated them outside Panama. They did, of course, have to capitulate some money because the pirates were a bunch of villainous savages that cut off heads. But he was sort of daring the governor of Costa Rica to do the same. 
you know, don't be a chicken. I beat the pirates. Why can't you? But remember, these are the French he was talking about, not English, Anglican, Corsarios, Lutheranos, or Dutch Calvinists, and they weren't the French Huguenot religious exiles of 20, 30 years ago. They were French Catholics. And due to that, it was the French more than anyone else that offended Spain with their attacks. They were Catholic brothers attacking them. They attacked not only Spanish towns and Spanish ships, but Spanish honor. For their part, the French saw themselves in a much better light than Spain did. They saw themselves as good Catholics. Ravno de Lusanne writes during one of their raids in 1686, quote, Though we were forced to chastise the Spaniards, we showed ourselves to be very exact in the preservation of the churches, into which we carried the pictures and images of the saints which we found in particular houses, that they might not be exposed to the rage and burning of the English, who were not much pleased with these sorts of precautions, they being men that took more satisfaction and pleasure to see one church burnt than all the houses of America put together. End quote. The English did take pleasure in despoiling Spanish Catholic churches. They destroyed images of saints, which they thought to be idolatrous. They smashed and burned what they saw as ungodly opulence in the Spanish churches. And yet, the governor of Panama called the French buccaneers, the Catholics, enemies of God, and new Turks. In part, he was lumping all the pirates in together, but it was particularly offensive to have Catholics sailing alongside Protestants and attacking fellow Catholics. Even more so because Louis, the French king, said often and loudly that he considered himself to be God's representative on earth. He stood next to the Pope in his estimation, and he spread his brand of Catholicism. He sought to supplant Spain as the most Catholic of nations, and the king of Spain as the most Catholic king. So the Spanish built a fleet. They were about to sail for the French corsairs and destroy them, to kill them all. And Edward Davis was the only pirate that knew what was coming. There is one final letter which pertains to the Spanish plan to destroy the French fleet. It was sent to the president of Panama, and then shared with the viceroy in Lima. And it was really the seed of the whole plan to mount a fleet and destroy the French. It reads, quote, Captain Francois Groinet is separated from his men at Rialego and gone ashore with an hundred and fifty men upon the isles of Napala. We took three of their men, who told us that those of them that were gone up towards Panama had a design to return to the North Sea. Those people seeing no place whereunto to retire became as so many enraged dogs. We had no need of that, for wherever these irreligious wretches set their feet on land, they always win the victory. Send us a man who understands the way to sea-fighting, for I am of opinion they will never be able to get off from these islands, and so it will be convenient to go and to take them there. End quote. That was the beginning of the plan. A small colonial minister wrote that letter. He had a few ships, and he believed them enough to take Francois Groinet and kill him. He just wanted a man who knew the way of sea-fighting. But the president of Panama and the viceroy at Lima decided to add to his numbers, to mass a fleet between them, all of their best warships, and then they would fall on Francois Groinet. So Captain Edward Davis sent a ship with eight men out to meet Captain Groinet to warn them of the impending attack. 
That English bark found the French on 12 April at Point St. Helena, near the approach to Guayaquil. Grenet had his half-galley and his fleet of sloops and barks and pirogues. Captain George Dew was nearby, reportedly, but he had another hideout. Lusson describes the area off Point St. Helena and says they found themselves, quote, in a kingdom of large fishes to whom we gave no quarter, end quote. There they caught all manner of fish, they ate well, but they were in competition with what Lusson calls sea wolves, sharks maybe, but probably sea lions that chased off the fish and toppled at least one boat. They were lucky to find the fish. The French had been on the brink of starvation since, well, really since they entered the Pacific and were still at the brink of starvation in April 1687. It had been a year of feast and famine, but mostly famine. They stuck around the Gulf of Nicoya mostly because the nearby orchards and plantations were a good place to go raid for food whenever necessary. But now they had moved on. When the English ship found them, the French were ashore. They had roaring fires and were roasting fish. Now the eight Englishmen were on board a recently captured prize, a merchantman, a bark that was carrying wine and corn flour. And everyone, the pirates on both sides, were willing to share. Imagine being really hungry, like haven't eaten for two days hungry, and you get to sit down to a meal of fresh fish roasted over an open fire. That would be pretty good. But then, imagine a few friends show up, and they've brought some drinks, some copper-bottomed pots, a little bit of cornmeal, and a decent supply of oil. That would turn... A decent meal, uh, a meal you might eat after fishing while camping into a good old-fashioned fish fry. There is a good chance as well that one of the pirates had a guitar, maybe a violin. They definitely would have had drums. Wouldn't you like to be sitting right now on a South American beach, eating fresh-caught fish, drinking good Spanish wine while singing and playing music under the stars? The pirates certainly did. The English did eventually break up the party. They had to share the news of what was coming. The Spanish were gathering a fleet at Lima, not that far away, and they were preparing to attack. Grenet and Picard and de Marte were preparing to attack nearby Guayaquil, but the Spanish might be able to reach them before they did. And then Lusanne shares the whereabouts of the other English captains, which contradicts some of our other sources. He says that Peter Harris sailed for the East Indies with Captain Swan. He didn't. He does confirm that William Knight had returned to the North Sea and that Captain Davis was nearby in the Pacific somewhere. He explains that those on Captain Davis's crew that had earned enough to return home, those men that had made money gambling on board, had returned with Captain Knight to the Caribbean, and then many of the men on board Knight's crew that had gambled away all their winnings, they joined up with Davis. And then Jean Rose was still there as well. In all, the crew of Bachelor's Delight, including Jean Rose, Captain Davis, Peter Harris, they numbered 60 English and 20 French pirates. They were still to the south, though. They were making their way north from Arica to rendezvous with Francois Grenet, George Dew, Pierre Le Picard, and Mathurin de Marte. But by the 14th of April, everyone except Davis and his group had gathered at Drake's Isle, the Isla de Plata. 
the eight Englishmen on board that merchantman that had brought the wine and the cornmeal, well, they decided to sail with Groinet and Du for their raid on Guayaquil. Those pirates unfurled their sails and headed southeast for the Bay of Guayaquil. Now that leads to quite a fight. We're going to talk about that fight next time, though. For now, let's stay here on Isla Plata. When Groinet and Lusanne and George Du sailed away, Drake's Isle was quiet for a while. There were birds chirping. The tide was coming in and going out. In the night there were lonely calls of nocturnal creatures. Then, about two weeks later, in mid to late April, a squadron of Spanish vessels arrived off her shores. It was a decently impressive force, at least for the Pacific. There was a large Spanish frigate, much like an English man-of-war. There were two or three Spanish galleons, well-armed, sturdy warships, but smaller than a frigate, with a few less guns. Then there were sloops of war, a few gunboats, and even a fire ship. They had come to attack and destroy the pirate fleet of Francois Groinet once and for all. Their most recent intel put him here, at Isla Plata. They searched for his fleet of periaguas and canoes and his half-galley, but they couldn't find him. They sailed all around the island. They searched all of the inlets with their gunboats, but there just weren't any pirates there. The admiral had a decision to make. This fleet was custom-built to utterly destroy the French pirate fleet, but the only chance he had of doing so was if he knew where they were. His most likely destination was Guayaquil. It was close to Isla Plata. The entire Spanish fleet could sail on Guayaquil, and if the pirates were there, they could destroy them. But if they weren't there, if they had gone anywhere else, they would just be sailing around the bay, and this Spanish fleet would lose them. So the admiral decided to hedge his bets. He would split up his armada into smaller squadrons. One would sail north for the Panama region. Another would sail south toward Lima. A third would sail west-northwest for the Galapagos, and the admiral would take the fourth squadron and sail east for Point St. Helena and Guayaquil Bay. Each squadron was ordered to gather as many ships as possible to that squad and, if possible, search the region and, if nothing was found, return here to Drake's Isle. Toward the end of April, 1687, this impressive fleet split up and left Drake's Isle. And that was good news for Captain Edward Davis. Bachelor's Delight arrived with all of her satellite ships just a few days later. Now his fleet was more impressive than it had been. He had barks and sloops, all of them well armed, but they were only moderately well manned. He had taken many of these prizes with no trouble, but he didn't have enough men to fully crew all of them. If Captain Groinet were here, they could have put men on board all of the ships. They could have made them full. They could have added the extra guns, and then they would have been a true force to be reckoned with. With all of the pirates on board all of these new vessels, with all of their guns mustered, they could have fought off that Spanish armada. Of course, if Captain Groinet had been here to add his guns and man his ships, well, that Spanish fleet would have already killed him and all of those pirates who could have crewed Davis's ships. Davis did find evidence of pirates and of Spaniards, but not of a battle. Now, Davis didn't know where Groinet had gone. 
not any more than the Spanish admiral did. Not for certain, at least. But any pirates that were on Drake's Isle were almost certainly headed for Guayaquil. So Captain Davis set sail east, but much like the Spanish admiral, he sent off other ships in other directions. The only account we have of the following few days comes from Luzon, and he wasn't there. He learned about it after the fact, and remember, he was none too fond of the English, but I think his account works nonetheless. That Spanish squadron, the Admiral's squad, had rounded Point St. Helena. Now, there were French lookouts that were left by Groenet there in the Bay of Guayaquil, and they immediately sent word on to Groenet. Then they engaged the Spanish fleet. They didn't engage them head-on, not looking for battle. They were in tiny, swift little vessels, almost open boats. No, they acted like proper buccaneers. They came in the night. They attacked the smaller Spanish ships in the squadron. They bit hard, and then they disengaged and fled. Those smaller, faster Spanish ships gave chase to the French pirates, and within just a few minutes, they were deep into the Bay of Guayaquil. Meanwhile, though, the admiral, in his frigate, was just sort of left behind. He couldn't follow his gunboats into some of the waters they were going into, and his ship just wasn't fast enough to keep up. That's where Captain Edward Davis found him, at the mouth of the Bay of Guayaquil, all alone. Bachelor's Delight was a better ship than the Spanish frigate. It was in better repair. It had been careened more recently, and it had more guns on board. In a straight-up fight, it should have won. However, Lusanne records that, quote, the greatest part of his crew were continually drunk, end quote. The Bachelor's Delight was, well, apparently discipline had waned on board. I think many of the more thoughtful members of the crew probably went with Swan on Signet, and now these were just good old-fashioned pirates, drinking as much as possible. Plus, they had recently taken a vessel full of wine. Davis attempted to sail on that Spanish frigate. He wanted to board her and hopefully capture her. That would be quite a prize. But the Spanish ship slipped away. Davis ordered Bachelor's Delight to tack about to leeward, but his men were drunk. They did an awful job. In the maneuver, the Spanish were given the opportunity to fire on Davis and Bachelor's Delight, and they scored a hit. It was a glancing blow, but it did some damage. When Bachelor's Delight was finally in position, they attempted to come in close once again, but the frigate avoided her. She tried to run, but Davis kept on the Spanish Admiral, and they danced around the bay and occasionally out into the open ocean. This went on for two days. Davis would attempt to come in close and board the Spanish, the Spanish would get away, fire upon Bachelor's Delight, and the dance would begin all over again. Then... On the morning of the third day, Bachelor's Delight lowered her flag. Now the Spanish were growing more and more confident. This three-day-long battle seemed to be going in their favor. So when they saw the pirates lower their flags, some of the men may have been hopeful. Perhaps the English pirates were surrendering. And then the pirates raised a bloody flag, a red flag. Those Englishmen on board Bachelor's Delight had sobered up. They put their tackle and rigging into proper order, and now Davis closed in for the kill. The Spanish frigate saw that bloody flag raised. She saw Bachelor's Delight coming in close, and she ran for it. 
The Admiral ran so hard and so fast that he actually ran the ship aground. One of the best ships in the Spanish fleet, and now it was useless. It lay damaged on one of the shoals near the shore, and quickly it was beginning to sink. The sailors and soldiers, the Spanish on board, well, they abandoned ship. Now, some of them were in boats, but there weren't enough boats to carry everyone. So most of those Spanish soldiers just jumped overboard and made for shore. Shore was still a fair distance away, though. So Edward Davis sent out boats to pick them up. He probably saved some of their lives. They were captured and under guard and would be ransomed, but they were alive, and they might not have been if not for Captain Edward Davis. However, we can't blame the Admiral for this debacle. He'd had his thigh shot off the day before, and he died. And those are the words that Lusanne uses, his thigh was shot off. His lieutenant, who took over the captaincy of the ship, ran her aground, and Captain Davis saw him in one of the canoes attempting to escape with his life, but Davis ran him down. The lieutenant said that he was running for Lima to warn the viceroy, which is probably true, but now he was staying put in pirate hands. There were still three other squadrons of Spanish Navy out looking for the pirates, but now all of the pirates in the Pacific, all of the English and French pirates, were concentrated in the Bay of Guayaquil, and their admiral, their frigate, their best vessel, was sinking to the bottom of the sea. Next time, we're going to follow the English and French pirates under Francois Groenet, Pierre de Picard, Mathurin de Marte, and George Dew to their attack on Guayaquil. We're going to discuss truth and lies, and then, finally, we'll leave the Pacific Ocean for far distant shores. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everyone who has left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has recommended the show to friends, and everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, without every last one of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight